0: Chlorum, Borealis, Paradigm, Expansion.
1: Greetings from the North and welcome to part one of a discussion called Secrets of the Third Reich with Dr. Joseph Patrick Farrell. Now, he is a true Renaissance man, and an expert on many fields. He has his PhD from Oxford University, and is a former adjunct professor, composer of classical music, plays the harpsichord, and produces books like a German factory. So far, he has authored 26 and counting check out his full bibliography and expanded biography at our website where you'll also find links to his website youtube blog amazon page etc one of his series of research are into the covert aspects of the nazi cult today we have invited him on to learn about the discoveries and theories of his first three books concerning this incredible and underestimated topic. Welcome uh, to the forum, Joseph. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about the Nazi cult in relation to your books on the subject. (laughs) Yeah. And you have a lot to choose between, but in particular, Reich of the Black Sun, the SS Brotherhood of the Bell, and the Nazi International. Now, you have uh, a lot more books on the subject, but we'll try to keep within a timeline uh, until the end of the war. Okay. Yeah. So, a good start would be if you could just uh, describe how you see this current, how this came about.
0: Well, I'm glad that you um, qualified Nazism as a cult, because fundamentally that's what I think it is um, there's another researcher out there that has done a lot of research on, on the Nazis by the name of Peter Lavenda mm. and this is also the take that he has uh, I talk with Peter occasionally and we're both agreed that, that Nazism if you look at it fundamentally it's a cult so we go back to the beginnings of, of the movement back in the early 1920s and what you see of course you have the formation of of the deutsche arbeiterpartei and and then of course they add the nazi nationalsozialistische you know and all of that but um fundamentally this this begins out of the freikorps movement after world war 1 in southern germany when you had all the german soldiers returning from the war um uh, The German army demobilized, but in point of fact, what these soldiers did, many of them, was they they formed these uh, right wing militant groups to try and and prevent the the rise of of socialism and more particularly communism inside of of the Weimar Republic. The other thing we have to look at, um, there is an excellent scholar out there uh, from Oxford University by the name of nicholas Goodrich clark mm-hmm. and he has written a book a very important book that outlines and details the various occult influences on on the nazi party in particular things like uh lance von liebenfels uh some of these austrian uh, for want of a better word occultists that's what they were uh, you have the you have the influence of, of secret societies such as the Tula Gesellschaft with with Dietrich Eckhart and, and people like this that certainly had an influence on the Nazi Party. And then you have to look at Hitler and his immediate circle of, of associates during those early years, one of the principal ones, of course, being Rudolf Hess. Um, Hess was an interesting figure because Hess was born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt
1: Hmm.
0: uh, to a very uh, prominent kind of upper middle class German family there and Hess of course being in Egypt imbibed a a very healthy, (laughs) if you want to qualify it that way interest in in esoteric and occult matters, so you had these influences percolating in the Nazi party in, in the leadership circle Uh, The other one you have to look at would be, um, of course, um, Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler, Mm. who did, as we know, and I mean, it's very clear, he had a persisting, throughout the war, a persisting personal interest in occult matters. So I'm very glad that you you qualified it as a cult, because essentially that's what it is. Mm. So, you know, if we look at Nazism as a religion, then we can understand why it doesn't really ever fade away after the war. It just kind of crawls into the woodwork like cockro- cockroaches. You know?
1: <laughs> so, so. Yeah, but but the interesting thing, and we're going to get to this, is the technological aspect of uh, yes. what they did. And like you're saying here, there is a lot of uh, philosophical currents in the origins which meet. And you mentioned Hess, and we could probably also mention. Uh, Rudolf von Sebottendorf, because he oh, yes, absolutely. he had his uh, um, connections in uh, not Alexandria but uh, Constantinople, right, right. And uh, when we see all these and, and this folkish movement, you know, national romance and uh, philosophy, so right. where did the science come in?
0: Well, in my view, the the problem that you have with Nazism when you look at it is you also have this this typically german fascination for advanced scientific concepts for engineering advanced technology and by the time that the nazis take power you have this manifest in a very very this this peculiar blend of of science and and, uh, esoteric and occult doctrine Mm with the establishment of the Annenerbe Dienst by Heinrich Himmler in a personal decree incidentally and in, i think it was 1940 mm. um, you know this this the official name the ancestral research and teaching bureau or something like that but mm-hmm. for short in german the Annenerbe Dienst and in this decree it's very interesting when you read this this was this was one of those papers that was presented at the uh, Nuremberg uh, uh, Kriegsverbrecher Prozess, the the, the the war crimes trial. And this this document is very short, but what it says, and I'm paraphrasing, is that that this bureau is also to investigate the lore and, and legendary of ancient societies. Um, it's to investigate the all avenues of the occult. And then there's a key phrase for any potential military application. Hmm. So you have it right there, you know, that at the upper echelons of, of the whole SS organization, you have this understanding, for good or ill, that. There is a technology, there's a science that may be gleaned if one looks at ancient texts and, and monuments in a certain way that may be gleaned and may be beneficial for some sort of military application. And for me, this is really kind of the beginning of it, because what this also means, Alvin, is that you have within the Third Reich, you have created a, a climate of research that is willing to try and do, and of course we know that they did mm-hmm. uh, do almost anything, including the most barbaric and inhuman cruelties that that you can imagine. Mangala and stuff. Yeah. Mangala oh. and, and uh, Hubert Struckhold and and people like this. Yeah, and and. But the other thing that, that they're doing is, you know, they're doing crazy wild uh, things like using pendulums to try and find allied ships <laughs> in the ocean. And you know, mm. they're using dowsers to f- try and find the secret location where the Italians have hidden Mussolini away, you know, to yeah. hand him over to the allies. They're doing all this crazy stuff. And we hear about this all the time. Uh, We hear about the failures, but what I'm trying to point out here is what you've done is you've created a culture where people are allowed and, in fact, encouraged to think out of the box of scientific orthodoxy. So this, to my mind, means that the failures are going to be sensational. But so are the successes, and the successes, while they may be few and far between, will probably be rather breathtaking once you once you understand that these people are, are deliberately thinking out of the box. Right. So this, this to my mind, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to point out that
1: uh, uh, what you're describing here is quite a paradox, because on the yes. one hand, you have the fact that, I mean, we're talking about the Nazis. They are not the most tolerant people. No. And, <laughs> and on the other hand, you have uh, actually a very free, open, philosophical
0: right. Um, condition. Right, right. This It is paradoxical, but we have to understand that that, that um, philosophical openness, if you will, um, is confined within... The SS and within its black projects world. This is the key point. Yeah. And one of the things I point out in my various books, and I think we should probably address this now because this is a key, key point. Mm-hmm. One of the groups that is created uh, is what was called the stop. This was a very, very top secret group that was headed by SS Obergruppenführer Hans Kammler. It was headquartered in the engineering division of the old Škoda Works in, in Pilsen in Czechoslovakia, and of course we know what happened after the Germans annexed Czechoslovakia. What they did was they created what was called the Reich Protectorat und the the Reich Protectorate of, of Bohemia and, and Moravia, which of course is the upper bulge of, of Czechoslovakia. That's Surrounded by Austria and, and Silesia and so on. So yeah. I say that for benefit of my American audience, because yeah. most, most people over here don't know where Bohemia and Moravia are. But anyway, yeah. um, what they did in, in doing this essentially was they took a, an entire region of a country, you know, a, 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 an area of the size of, of a good sized American state. And they turned it into an SS preserve. So, in other words, you couldn't get in or out of Bohemia or Moravia hmm. without SS papers. So, they're they're taking a whole region, so to speak, in my opinion, and kind of turning it into Area 51, if you will. Oh, oh, oh! In in part yeah.
1: two, when we're going to speculate, I, yeah. I have yeah.
0: some suggestions there. Yeah, we but continue in the, in the Skoda works, this, this Kammler stop was, was headquartered and we have to understand what, what general Kamler did. What he did was he freed all of the scientists and technicians that were associated with his group from all ideological constraints of the Nazi party. And, and basically in effect told them, all right, guys go out there and brainstorm, Mm the way to second third and fourth generation weapons in other words block out the basic technology tree of the stuff that we're going to have to research to come up with all of these advanced weapons so what he effect in effect did alvin is he created a um a think tank a a, a secret research projects think tank Mm -hmm. they even had their own private top secret magazine if you will where all the scientists involved in this project circulated their papers to each other so that they could see what they were up to. Mm. Now, you know, this may seem contrary to normal black projects procedure where you have the ultra classification and compartmentalization. But in point of fact, the reason that Kamler did this was that there was also a triple ring of gestapo security around this whole outfit Uh, there was political counterintelligence economic counterintelligence you know it was just an unbelievable amount of security that that the nazis clamped around this thing and it was run incidentally all of that security for this outfit was run by um, heinrich miller gestapo miller Mm. So, you know, that's another part of the story. This this is a huge story. That's why I've, I've written so many books about it. It is, it is, so, and we can't even so, begin to cover it all. But Yeah, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, but um, if we look at the rise of the Nazi cult then, and th- of course they, they kill off all uh, competing uh, thought patterns, uh, philosophies, right. They get the hegemony of uh, Germany eventually, and I guess we also should uh, expect that, in order to uh, get better weapons and wanting to win the war, that they put some priority into scientific research and so-called fringe scientific research. But you earlier been mentioning what they regarded as Jewish science versus. Germanic science. Could you uh, right. elaborate a little on that?
0: Well, let's let's look at that question in conjunction with this Kammler stop. Um, of course, Jewish science, as far as the Nazis were concerned, was anything you know connected to Einstein's theory of relativity and so on and so forth. So, in other words, this is quote unquote bad science. Mm. But it's important for people to remember something here. And that is that nuclear physics, quantum mechanics, is essentially, for all intents and purposes, a predominantly German invention. Uh, you know, our modern physics, if you stop and think about it, would have been absolutely impossible not only without the work of Einstein in quantum mechanics, but, but people like uh, Heisenberg, uh, Schrodinger, who of course wasn't German, but Germanic in that sense, yeah. um, mm-hmm. Bohr and so on and so forth. So quantum mechanics is, is a uniquely German thing. And so in other words, the Nazis, the allied legend, as I like to call it, of, of German nuclear incompetence. One of the ways it's usually accounted for when you read typical Western histories is that the Germans lost the race for the atom bomb because they had this kooky idea about Jewish physics and Einstein and a bunch of other science came over to the United States, leaving them utterly bereft of any uh, competent talent in in the realm of nuclear physics. Well, this is just plain and simple bunk. It's hogwash. Mm-hmm. Because you know, you had some very capable and talented scientists that remained in Nazi Germany um, and helped and assisted in their nuclear project. Walter Gerlach, Pasqual Jordan, who could have been a Nobel Prize winning scientist if it weren't for the fact that he was such an hardened Nazi. Uh, you know, you have all these people that remain in Nazi Germany. So you've got to account for so to speak, the nuclear dyslexia of, of the Germans during the war in some other way, uh, which I attempt to do in my books. Now, let's look at this in relation to the Kammlerstadt for a moment. Uh, I've already said that the Kammlerstadt was kind of a secret weapons think tank. And in my opinion, Alvin, it is kind of the German... Predecessor to an American outfit that exists today that's called the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, better known as DARPA, mm-hmm. uh, that was established by President Eisenhower in the 1950s, and it continues down to this day. Well, if you look at what DARPA does, they essentially are doing the same thing. They sit around. They have a bunch of scientists and technicians and engineers. They sit around. And they dream up wild and crazy applications of technology and, you know, how we're going to get there to do what we want to do. Uh, to give you an idea of what, they, what they've what they come up with, DARPA recently announced that they want the United States to be warp capable in 100 years. In other words, Star wow. Trek. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek. In well, a, 100 years, I mean. In uh, 100 years. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, I I call DARPA the diabolically apocalyptic research project agency. <laughs> That's probably the real name.
1: That's probably the real
0: name. Yes, <laughs> you know, because I think what they were doing is they were modeling. You know, you you see this influx of of Nazi scientists after the war into France, Great Britain, in yeah. this country, and and. You know, you, you, they bring with them not only their ideology, but they bring with them their organization. And I think, you know, we we picked up on this commerce stop and, and the tremendous amount of secrecy and, and organization and centralization that surrounded this thing. And, and we simply reduplicated it in the United States. Mm. So... The Kammler stop, if you look at it, as you say, they would have also been responsible for organizing the priorities um, of, of Nazi weapons research. And this is where it gets very interesting, because you can see a certain kind of prioritization in the projects that it had its hands Ball. And let's be honest here, folks, the Kammler stop, General Kamler, by the end of the war, and this is a known fact, was responsible for all secret research weapons projects inside the Third Reich hmm. from the V2s to the jet aircraft to the heat-seeking guided missiles, the television guided missiles, the the stealth material that they're coating their, their latest U-boats with at the end of the, all of this is under the control of General Kammer so he's an immensely powerful man uh, and he's an, an immensely uh, Skilled man. The other fact we need to remember about the Kammler stop and about General Kammler, and I think this is a crucial point for people to understand, um, particularly as we continue these talks down the line in the future, is that General Kamler was also responsible by dint of his position for the ss building and works division of the ss now what this means is essentially he was put in charge not only of the entire archipelago so to speak of of concentration camps within nazi germany in other words this is the man that can tap into that 14 million persons plus labor pool of of slave labor Mm. And he's also the man responsible for building all of these vast networks of, of underground factories and installations throughout uh, the Third Reich.
1: This is, so, this is an
0: incredibly important man, then. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, this, and most people haven't heard of him. And this is the other part of the story because the story, you know, the secrecy around this group was so extreme that the story really wasn't broken until about the mid-1980s by a British journalist named Tom Agustin who published a book called Blunder uh, in which he, he gave the story of the stop for the first time in the open literature. And the reason he was able to do this was he knew one of Kamler's closest aides, a fellow by the name of Dr. Wilhelm Foss, who also enters this story in just bizarre ways later on. But um, when Foss was close to death, he finally spilled the beans on this whole outfit. And of course, since then, of course, the the, the documents have have been declassified. And, yeah. So, and, so there's no.
1: It's not just anecdotes. There is. A oh hard, no, no, hard no 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 no. Uh,
0: let Let's give a case in point. Um, when When the german wiedervereinigung the, the german reunification occurred in you know formally completed by 1992 what this did what that had the effect of doing in in this country in the united states in particular was it kicked loose a bunch of documents within the national archives over here that had been classified up to that point and mm-hmm. The same thing occurred in Germany, as a matter of fact, when the former Eastern Zone suddenly became accessible to German researchers who went into all of these old SS underground installations, which, you know, the ones in the Eastern Zone were far, far larger than anything that the Allies encountered in the West. Mm. And they wondered, you know, what in the name of sense was going on here? <laughs> you know, because these things were just right off the radar. Mm. And some of them were so extremely booby-trapped that not even the Soviets ever bothered trying to open up all the stuff. So huh. there was just this, this huge uh, flood of material as things began to be researched, as documents were declassified. Well, one- who, who classified them in America? Well, in America, initially, the the paperclip operation, the the bringing over of all of these Nazi scientists, was in the hands of the United States Army, or in in some cases, the United States Army Air Force. At that time, it was one service branch, mm-hmm. and most of these files, therefore, if you if you hunt for them, are going to be either in U.S. Army counterintelligence files or they're going to be in certain airbase files. This is one key point people have to remember. If you ask the National Archives for some of these things, they won't have them because the actual files are kept at various airbases. right? patterson Dayton, Ohio, Maxwell, down in Alabama, and so on. <coughs> Pardon me, but this is where the declassification kick comes in. Well, one of the most interesting things that was declassified in, uh, I think it was 1992, the very end of the first Bush administration, just before uh, President Clinton uh, took office, was an affidavit that is called the Zinsser affidavit, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. And this affidavit is, is the statement of a German pilot, Hans Zinsser, that he made to American intell- interrogators. In October of 1944, all right, and he's, de- he's detailing things that he claimed he saw flying a, a Heinkel 111 medium bomber out over the Baltic Sea from, from Mecklenburg, then east out over the Baltic Sea toward the island of Regan, all right? Mm-hmm. And in this affidavit, I have the entire affidavit reproduced in, in my book, Reich of the Black Sun. In the affidavit, he describes, and these are his own words, and I'm paraphrasing here. He describes what he calls an an atom bomb test. He describes the electrical malfunction of his aircraft. He describes seeing a blast pressure wave extending to a, a circumference or a radius, I forget which, of about a kilometer. So in other words, this is a very large explosion. And now the other thing that Zinser described as he was flying his plane and, and describing all this to his American interrogators was not only did he see this enormous blast pressure wave, not, or, not only did he experience electrical malfunction of the equipment in his aircraft, but he also describes the cloud as a mushroom cloud. Hmm in which, and this is the key point here, in which he could see as the cloud continued to rise, the colors of purples and reds and blues. So in other words, he's not describing a conventional mushroom cloud that results from a conventional explosive. Because as we know, in an atomic bomb blast, as the mushroom cloud rises, you have the ongoing combustion of the nuclear material in the cloud, mm. you know, giving off these colors as, as the cloud ascends. So in other words, let's look what he's describing. He's describing an enormous blast radius. He's describing electrical malfunction, which we now know is electromagnetic pulse that, that results from nuclear explosions. And he's describing the continuing combustion of material in a non-conventional explosive rising in a mushroom cloud. So in other words, before the signatures of atomic bomb blasts are well known publicly, this man is describing all the signatures of a nuclear explosion. And he's claiming that this happened in October of 1944. So, you know, you can you can see why the American government kept all of this classified until the 1990s, because what this one document means is, like it or not, the Nazis tested something ahead of the Americans in 1945, fully eight months, in fact, in front of, of, of the American test, and... This means then, in turn, that what the what I call the post-war Allied legend about Nazi nuclear engineering being, you know, incompetent, is simply not the case. Mm. So we have to go back and and we look at all of this stuff going on inside the Third Reich in a very very different way, and this is my point.
1: Yeah, and in. Uh I think it's the Reich of the Black Sun. You do detail a, a lot of the secret weapon uh, projects oh, yes. they had. Yeah, uh, And uh, I just want to point out, by the way, that uh, people should really get this book because it's um, going through many, many interesting things that you're uh, talking about now. But I would like to uh, ask you if you could share with us any of these secret weapon projects that are, should we say, not in the... Uh, Mainstream science-based that they could have some interesting
0: weird
1: um, aspects to them. Well, the
0: let's back up just a bit. The reason the reason that I put Reich of the Black Sun at the very beginning of all of my Nazi books, and unfortunately, that book, which is a good book, it was printed with lots of misprints by my publisher. I simply have never had the time to go back and uh, correct them, but. What I do there is I outline an overview case of why I think that the Nazis obtained the atom bomb first. Mm. All right, yeah. that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book deals with some of their occult things and some of their other weapons projects, some of the more bizarre ones, uh, mm. fuel, fuel air bombs. Uh, you know, there's this very weird installation that existed at underground at the University of Heidelberg where they had apparently an artificial quartz, a parabolic artificial quartz that they had grown in the form of a kind of a parabolic mirror that they were zapping with just enormous amounts of energy. And that in turn would disintegrate objects, you know, that were placed in front of this parabolic quartz mirror. Uh, They were just doing some very, very bizarre things. Hmm. Now, the reason I put that first is that I'm building up in that series of books to the project called the bell Die Glocke) in yeah, german yeah um the bell story was broken by a polish researcher by the name of igor who uh, lives in warsaw and in a series of books that he published in polish i think in the late 1980s early 1990s and then he That long ago? Yes, it is. Uh, I've seen those early, early Polish books. Uh, My my publisher, David Childress, uh, has copies of them. Uh, Then Witkowski assembled all of that research and published uh, a wonderful book, if you're not familiar with it, called The Truth About the Wunderwaffe. Mm. Uh, Published that in English uh, in, I think, the late 1990s. He published a Polish version, "Oprawda i Rafa in Polish, uh, around the same time. Uh, so, if any of your listeners in Europe are familiar with Polish or English, they can get either version of that book. But it's probably, in my opinion, the best book, single-volume book hmm. on Nazi secret weapons, because what he details in there is just uh, just incredible. Uh, <laughs> You know, and and he admits and anybody else who's dug into it admits that uh, this is just scratching the surface. Mm. But in that book, that's the book where he breaks the story of the bell. Um, The British researcher Nick Cook, who works for Jane's Defense Weekly, uh, published his book about the bell, uh, The Hunt for Zero Point in English in the year 2000. It became it became quite a popular book. So that's
1: around the time uh, this story became more well known. Uh, in, yes in the West. right
0: it was yeah. it was yeah, it was it was Nick Cook's book that put the Nazi Bell project on the radar. Mm. And I read the book, of course, and uh, contacted Igor and and exchanged a couple emails with him, got a hold of his book in English, and uh, I thought, you know, if this story is true, then let's see if we can test the truthfulness of it by attempting to reverse engineer the physics of it,
1: mm.
0: can, can we look at this project a different way? Now, what the claims for the bell are in Witkowski's version of it. And let me describe just the nuts and bolts of the story, the data set that we've got to deal with. The bell was a bell shaped device. Obviously it, uh, the dimensions were approximately 15, 12 to 15 feet at the base and, and, i 'm sorry, I use English imperial measures i just don 't think in metric for i, I just don 't think in metric for a variety of reasons actually, but uh, eventually we 'll get into it
1: metrics is a more logical system by the way but okay
0: it on. is it 's more logical it's more it 's more logical, but the problem is the ancient structures of the world appear to not have used a metric system used they use geodetically and astronomically based measures, which metric claims to be but really isn 't. Mm. Um, so, you know, the closest thing we have to those ancient measures is actually the old British imperial system, and that's why I use it. Uh, you get more interesting results if you crunch the numbers in English than you do metric mm-hmm. on some of those structures. But anyway, the bell, the bell is about 15 to 12 feet wide at the base. <clears throat> hmm. It is about 15 to 18 feet tall. The bell itself is either a metal or a ceramic. It was cryogenically cooled, either with liquid uh, nitrogen or liquid oxygen, one of the two. This is uh, vitkovsky's uh, case. Inside the device, it had two counter-rotating cylinders, which were spun up mechanically at extremely high speed. The cylinders were filled with a substance that was called Serum 525, which is described as being a heavy, gooey, metallic, liquid like substance of a very dark red, kind of cherry or maroon color. All right. Mm. And they spun this up. Vitkovsky thinks that this substance had at least mercury in it, which would make a great deal of sense uh, being a liquid type of metallic substance. And if it's that color, if it's cherry or maroon in color, well, we're dealing with an oxide of some sort. So, you know, we've got a bit of a clue as to the possible chemical composition of this substance. And they, they spun this substance up in these two counter rotating cylinders at tremendous velocities and then pulsed it, with extremely high voltage electricity now what that would do is of course it would turn the substance if particularly if it's mercury into a plasma hmm. the rotation coheres the plane of rotation of all the molecules in the substance so in other words the purpose of the rotation is you're you're creating a plasma under extreme differential rotation just like in the Sun <laughs> Okay, wow. so, yeah you see where we're going here hmm. And according, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's the Black Sun, yeah. And this device, according to Mitkovsky, when it was housed and tested underground, had to be housed in a room that was lined with ceramic bricks, over which they put rubber mats that had to be taken out after each test and burned, and then the whole thing scrubbed down with brine. And this is interesting because if you look at modern plasma traps, they are indeed uh, housed in those types of facilities, and you do have to take those kinds of precautions. So in other words, you're getting whatever they're doing with this device. You're getting a lot of synchrotron radiation from it. And in the descriptions that he has in his book, when the device was first tested, it killed seven of of the technicians testing it. Of Due to this phenomenon. It, Excuse me. When was this approximately? Uh, okay, the bell. We're we'll get. We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> we're getting. Mm. Um, the the Germans tested a variety of plants and other organic materials in in the field of this device. Plants were said to have decayed to kind of a brackish gray goo mm. within a matter of hours, you know, and mm. do so without putrefaction. You know, so, you know, this, whatever they're doing with this thing, it's a very bizarre device. And then on top of all of this, there were claims that Witkowski ran into that <clears throat> the inmates of the local Gross Rosen concentration camp, the bell was apparently tested in uh, Ludwikowice in, in modern-day Poland or Ludwigsdorf in, in German, which would be in, in Upper Silesia. Um, very close to the Harz Mountains. Uh, I'd say probably, just guessing off the top of my head, it would be about 100 to 120 miles northwest of Breslau. All right, or, Connected or to Rockland. a concentration camp, right? Yeah, very close to the Gross Rosen concentration camp. Mm. Well, Vikovsky ran into people that were inmates at, at the Gross Rosen camp that claimed to have seen at night mm. a barrel what they call barrel-like devices glowing a pale blue glow, pardon me, levitating above the tree line and then levitating back down. So apparently this device levitated somehow. Now, please understand here, folks, this device did not dart around in the skies like a UFO. All it did, (laughs) all all it did was it levitated, all right? But to me, uh, Al, this is the this is the real kernel of truth possibly mm. to all of those rumors about Nazi UFOs. Yeah. Uh this this to me is is some sort of gateway technologies that the Nazis were testing. Now, you asked when did it begin? Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, Vitkovsky ran into something else very peculiar and quite frankly I always thought this was a very peculiar thing myself in that the, the scientist who was the head of the project was none other than Dr. Walter Gerlach. Now, if you, if you know who Gerlach is, he's a very, very famous scientist at that time. He had an international reputation because of his involvement in, in the Stern-Gerlach experiment that, that won Stern the Nobel Prize back in the early 1920s. So in other words, Gerlach was, you know, his his stature in, in physics was well known. But here's the problem. Gerlach, his whole area, his whole field of interest and expertise was not simply quantum mechanics, you know, particles and their spin, charge and so on. He was extremely interested in gravity. All right. Now, Gerlach is usually cited in the public literature as being the, the scientist in charge of the Nazi atom bomb project, which he was. But this is an extraordinarily unusual man to put into charge of an atom bomb project. But he's the perfect sort of guy to put in charge of a project like The Bell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which so. incidentally was called Project Kronos as a code name. Yes, there were two uh, code names that Vitkovsky uncovered. One was Project Kronos, which of course means time, or depending on how you want to translate the word there, it could also mean Project Saturn. All right? mm-hmm. And and, yeah. and that means also Project Satan. <laughs> well, in some people's understanding, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, the other. Project code name was Das Laternenträger project, which means the the Lantern Bearer Project, hmm. and of course that's kind of a very loose uh, loose sort of way of saying the Lucifer Project, you know, the Light Bearer hmm. Project. Hmm. So it had these two very suspicious code names, and on top of all of this. Vitkovsky uncovered a document and I reproduced this document in my book Roswell and the Reich and the reason I produce it there people have to read the book to see what's going on mm-hmm. but this document is a document from um, the Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft the, the German electrical company to um, I believe it was signed by the nuclear scientist Abraham Ezao and it's signed under the letterhead of Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering. <laughs> you hmm. know, so in other words, this document has has powerful people written all over it. Yeah. So, but but Goering but, is
1: is a very realistic man. He's he's
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Know, Goering, fancy. No, Goering you know, Goering is not a a stupid man by any stretch of the imagination. And um in this document it refers to a project that was referred to as Kriegsentscheident, war decisive. Right, right, right. And and you know, Witkowski points out in his book on the Bell that Kriegsentscheident is a the the occurrence of the word here is absolutely unique. Hmm there were other classifications of other projects in Germany like Kriegswichtig and so on, mm-hmm. you know, important for the war yeah, and so yeah. on and so forth, but um, this is the one and only occurrence that he found and and I agree with him, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of these old Nazi documents too and I've found some of these other terms, you know, Geheimenreichsdage, and Kriegsviktig and, and all of these classifications. Yeah, the the atom bomb, what was that yeah. called? Well, most researchers think the that the Kriegsentscheident term refers to their atom bomb project. Mm. I, okay. I'm in But Vitkovsky's boat that if his if his data set on the bell is correct, and I think it is, mm-hmm. because again we have Walter Gerlock heading this project, which you know is really up his bailiwick. We're spinning things up, we're we're spinning out synchrotron radiation, we're creating kind of a technological version of the Sun we're zapping it with massive amounts of direct current electricity and it levitates you know <laughs> so this is the perfect gerlach sort of thing. <laughs> mm. so I think the project began in the 1930s actually even before the Nazis came to power and I, wow. I detail, yeah um, for various reasons but uh, again the key here is Gerlach because in the SS Brotherhood of the Bell. I I reprint a little tiny column filler article that ran in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, and this little article is written by Dr. Gerlach, Hmm. and it's about how German scientists have noticed when they're zapping things with their cathode tubes, when they zap mercury, they're getting little trace amounts of gold, (laughs) <laughs> wow so there's yeah. alchemy uh, alchemy uh, the and, and effect.
1: Al- <laughs> yeah
0: exactly and not only that but Gerlach in this little column filler article says calls it exactly that you know he uses the term alchemy <laughs> so yeah. and in the article if you read it carefully he says well this is kind of an interesting phenomenon we maybe ought to investigate this more so in other words we you know in one of germany's biggest newspapers we have one of germany's most prominent scientists writing in 1927 well this is an interesting phenomenon we need more money to research this and I think that's exactly what happened I think you have kind of the beginnings of something going on there but this was done done privately by some scientists Yeah, Yeah, this was done privately by scientists working for Siemens there were ah, scientists yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we'll get to the corporations we'll get, the banks. You know, yeah, Siemens, yeah. Siemens is one of those companies with a very very uh, deep vault of secrets yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but this phenomenon had been noticed by, by Japanese researchers and, and other scientists around the world the interesting thing that happened in Germany was there were companies taking out patents on it and Siemens of course was one of them but Gerlach, you know his his connection to all of these very strange projects is is very interesting once you see what what's going on so I think the bell probably began very early now the story that Vitkovsky uncovered the reason he uncovered it uh we need to talk about that mm-hmm. is that in nineteen forty four as as the soviet armies were were racing through southern Poland the the project, the Germans decided to shut this project down and by 1945 uh, Kammler it was either Kamler or Bormann I forget which one of them uh, gave an order to SS Obergruppenführer Jakob Sporenberg to execute 60 of the scientists that were involved with this project wow uh, and, th- obviously, what the Germans are trying to do is prevent Kobra. knowledge of it, you know, yeah. you know cover it up and, and prevent it from leaking to the Russians. The project is shut down and disappears. This is in '44. This is in late 1944, early 1945, just as the Russians yeah. are starting to approach Breslau. This, this you know, is
1: but, consistent with what we already know, because many, many leading Nazis started
0: to uh, lay out their right. escape plans around that. Time. Right, so, right. Yeah. Now, Vitkovsky assumes or, or makes the case in his book that he thinks that the Bell, and and Nick Cook follows him very closely, he thinks that the Bell and General Kamler were probably flown in one of those massive German uh, six-engine intercontinental aircraft, the uh, Junkers 390, to the United States. Um, that's where I disagree with Igor and, and Nick Cook in that I lay out in um, other books, the yeah. Nazi International in particular, that my reasoning for thinking that the project was withheld by the nazis from both the western allies and from the soviets Mm. and made its way ultimately to argentina yeah
1: you just spilled those beans i was thinking we could get to that later on sure (laughs) but uh, it's an important aspect but but, say is there any pictures of the bell
0: there are no pictures of the bell all there are are descriptions now igor when he published um first published the story in that little series of books that ran in poland he drew a a picture of the device and that picture again appears in his um, truth about the wunderwaffe and i i duplicate his drawing of it in ss brotherhood of the bell just so that people can kind of get an idea of what he thinks it looks like from its description now Sporenberg, the reason I mentioned Sporenberg and his execution of those scientists, it's because of him that we know anything about the bell, because according to Igor, Sporenberg was tried by a post-war Polish war crimes tribunal precisely for the execution of those scientists. Was this
1: after Nuremberg?
0: This was, uh, I believe, in 46 or 47. I think 46. This was an independent Polish Hmm. war crime trial. Now, that's interesting in itself, and people people have sometimes asked me about that. And the way I rationalize it, Al, is, is, as you know, that the borders, the pre-war borders of Poland are not what they are now. Um, you had uh, Silesia, Pomerania, West Prussia—you know those those German territories that became part of Poland—and mm. the Soviets took over parts of, of Eastern Poland and, and Bielorussia. So in other words, Poland kind of slid west <laughs> <laughs> on the map, mm. and you you now have the oder Nysa line, which is is the German-Polish border. But there were parts of modern day Poland that used to be Germany. And I think what happened here is that the Poles took over jurisdiction because of this. They took over jurisdiction of these types of cases and therefore Sporenberg fell under the jurisdiction of these Polish war crimes courts. Mm. Interestingly enough, um, Witkowski also points out something else. The, the Polish court sentenced him to death and supposedly he was executed, <clears throat> but Vitkowski points out that on the day of, of Sporenberg's execution, there was some hanky panky going of on. Of course, of course, course yeah. uh, at, at the at the Polish prison where General Sporenberg was was waiting execution, and he makes a pretty convincing case due to some contacts that he had with former russian intelligence officers that sporenberg was substituted at the last minute they substituted someone else to take sporenberg's place on the scaffold mm, you know poor mm, guy mm. and hustled sporenberg <laughs> back but, but, to the so not you know. the double but just some so yeah just somebody to, you pool. know to say okay sporenberg you know put a hood over his head and, you know mm. Uh so in other words Witkowski makes an interesting case that Sporenberg may have been smuggled back to the Soviet Union but it's his it's his affidavit it's his testimony to this Polish war crimes trial mm-hmm. that is how the bell story came about now many people point out to me that okay well has anyone seen this affidavit and the answer is no mm. And this is where this is where why I say you have to look at the data set of the bell very carefully. Can you look at that data set and look at the people that Bitkovsky alleges were involved in the project and make sense of it? Mm. In other words, can you reverse engineer the process of thought behind it? If you can, then it begins to look like the project makes sense. If you can find other corroboration of similar projects going on, and this is why I concentrate on Argentina after the war, mm-hmm. and find any detailed connections that might lead back to the bell, then chances are that Vitkovsky's construction of the story is correct, and I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other reason I think it is is that gradually there has been this attempt in certain circles to redo the whole data set and cast aspersions on this or that detail of the story. So, in other words, I think somebody's still trying to cover up something here.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, if we try to go through what we've already established here, we have the Nazi cult uh, having a huge priority on science not necessarily to solve the riddle of life but to <laughs> get better <laughs> <No>. weapons <laughs> we, ha- we see they have the manpower obviously uh, yeah. they have a lot of brilliant people I mean Germany before the war uh, not only Germany actually it's so interesting to see not many people know this of course you do but before the war I guess from the turn of the last centuries and until the war, the science in the world in the Western world was very different than now. There was a lot of oh, yes. breakthroughs. There was a lot of extremely interesting oh, uh, yes. uh, discoveries and theories. I mean everybody knows about Tesla, but but he's just one. And uh, I guess they also forced a lot of scientists to work for them. Not everyone was Nazi like in in heart. Right, right. but this Walter Gerlach, that was in charge of the most important uh, secret project. He was a a real card holding Nazi, right?
0: Yes, he was. He was true believer,
1: and and he started, like you said, uh, already before the war uh, in private, right?
0: Yes, I. I, that's my that's my best guess is that something started in during the days of the Weimar Republic and uh something of, along these lines started and that when the nazis took power uh particularly the ss would have looked at that project and said oh this is really promising right. we need to pump a lot of money mm. into this so, mm. you know.
1: and they didn't have to look hard either because he was no. he joined <laughs> so yeah
0: mm.
1: and his boss or this was a project under the authority of general kumler
0: Yes, yeah. right. Okay. Right. If you look at the chain of command that we're talking about here with the Kammler stop, you have you have Gestapo Miller involved in the security arrangements for it. You have Kammler himself who's running and managing all of this slave labor, building all these underground institutions, and, you know, orchestrating all these scientists in their various projects. So is the manager, all mm-hmm. right. The third person in this <clears throat> triumvirate, as I like to call it, I call it the unholy trinity, <laughs> is, is Reichsleiter Martin Borma, because Kammler, it's very interesting, at the end of the war, as they're moving all of this stuff out of Europe, Heinrich Himmler, supposedly and ostensibly Kammler's superior, mm-hmm. telegraphs Kammler, asking Kammler, asking Please note my words here, not ordering, Hmm. but asking Kamler if he can have the use of a truck, which was code for one of these enormous German intercontinental aircraft, you know, the Junkers 390s and 290s and so on, that Kamler had personal control over through the Luftwaffe Kampfgeschwader 200, which was transferred to Kamler's control by guess who? Martin Bormann. Hmm. so in other words the Heinrich Himmler is not even in the loop on what Kammler and his staff are up to right. the loop ends at Martin Bormann huh. <laughs> so, so I just toss that out there for yeah. a little for a little extra consideration yeah the rat line and all that stuff oh yeah uh,
1: that's <laughs> that's a uh, not a topic for today but But it's interesting. Uh, Of course, uh, Himmler was uh, often regarded uh, as one of those who were more inclined towards occultism and um, of the more impractical weirdness, (laughs) to put it like that. Exactly. Whereas Bormann is so
0: practical that he gets
1: control of what matters, right? (laughs) Yeah, Bormann,
0: Bormann, you know, I, I like to kid people a lot about this. Bormann, is kind of the bureaucratic Nazi, you know, you know, stage one Nazism is the Nazi revolution. Mm. But then you get the professional apparatchik and, and this is Borma. Mm. So, you know, I kid a lot with people that when you're dealing with Martin Bormann, you're dealing with Dick Cheney. Without the warmth and charm, <laughs> so. <laughs> so.
1: right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and still, some people believe he he wasn't that bright,
0: but obviously he must have been uh, pretty calculating. Bormann Bormann wasn't intellectually bright like you know a scientist would be mm. bright, but Bormann Bormann was an incredibly Byzantine, sly. incredibly yeah. sly, cunning, crafty. Uh, manipulator and Bormann also was you know he did have one area where his his genius really shone mm-hmm. and that was he was a financial genius mm-hmm. um, he he could he could move and manage capital like nobody's business.
1: <laughs> it's so good you mention that because my next question was to face this into the financial aspects because they need money for this. And uh, right. uh, if you could elaborate a little on how much Europe was looted by the oh, Nazis, yes. and, and then oh, yes. there's the corporational support and all that, and the banks. If you, <laughs> It's a huge area, but if you would like to try to make some well, sense of that... The, he oh boy,
0: this is. <laughs> I I have spent so many of my books dealing beginning with the Nazi international, and then on into uh, covert wars and breakaway civilizations, and and I I spent many of my most recent talks. Uh, I did a talk at a conference in California last year, a Secret Space mm-hmm. Program conference, where my first talk was all about finance. Mm. So let's look on the Nazi side of this where all the money is coming from because, you know, the other thing that people look at, they're looking at this, this little country the size of the state of Texas, you know, that, that packs this enormous wallop for one thing. Mm. You know? So where is that coming from? And they're looking at all these projects. I mean, my word, Al, when you look at modern weapons systems, cruise missiles, drones. Television guided missiles, smart bombs. If you look at the modern weapons inventory, you can probably find some prototype in the Nazi arsenal by the end of World War II. And so this is going to require, you know, not to mention things like atom bombs and fuel air bombs and bells and so on and so forth. If you look at all of this, how in the name of sense were they paying for Mm -hmm. it? And this is where it gets interesting because, as you say, and as everybody knows, the Nazis are literally looting Europe of, of every last bit of, of hard assets and liquid capital that they can. Gold teeth, anything. Gold teeth, gold teeth, artworks, patents. You know, yeah. there, there's a whole branch of the SS that was set up just to look at national pat- patent applications within the conquered territories of Europe. Hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, there would have been an SS officer up there in Norway, looking through all the patent applications coming, you know, coming in at Oslo. And there would have been an SS officer in Paris looking at French patents, you know, everything. And pulling, obviously pulling any patent application that, that the Nazis would have thought had national security implications. So, you know, this is an enormous outfit. So you've got all this loot sloshing around. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to launder it. And and, uh, I'm writing a book now where I talk about some aspects of this. You're going to launder it. And and the the way the Nazis did this was through the Bank of International Settlements in in Basel, Switzerland. Mm. Uh, That's key to the story. The other thing – Excuse me. The bank in
1: Switzerland was connected to the rest of the world.
0: Right. Oh, yeah, so they absolutely. it was like a bridge between international oh, yeah. finance
1: and the local. Okay. Mm.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The 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 president of the Bank of International Settlements during World War Two was an American by the name of Thomas McKittrick. And he traveled under diplomatic act, uh, passport throughout, you know, Axis Europe. You know, he, he traveled through Italy and was given, you know, the red carpet treatment by by the Italian fascists and the same thing inside of Nazi Germany. So you know, this bank was was a huge part of the Nazi network. Um, the other thing we have to remember is is the German capital system, the capitalism in Germany, before and during the war is is cartel capitalism, Rheinische mm. uh, capitalism. You have these big, huge corporate combines. You know, IG Farben. You know, but you know, all of these huge German cartels with tremendous international extent. I mean, the power of IG Farben alone was so vast that during the war, when America wanted to use... Uh, the Farben licenses to produce synthetic rubber. Farben denied it and we couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Even though even though Bush uh, the Bush family was on board. (laughs) Oh, sure. Sure. You know, uh, yeah, you've got the Bush teasing connection, you know, and Hjalmar shocked. There's another character. But anyway, you had this enormous capital flow system established in these these huge um, cartels. Now, the other part of this is that the Nazis also, in my opinion, and I argued this case briefly in uh, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, the Nazis also put into place a completely hidden system of finance. And this was extraordinarily clever. Because when the war broke out, Reinhard Heydrich, who oddly enough, coincidentally enough, became the SS governor of, of the Reich Protectorate in Bohemia and Moravia. So there's yet another connection that we're looking at something that's being set up very deliberately. Well, Heydrich wrote a top secret memo. This, I think, was in November, October or November of 1939. So the war has just begun. Heydrich wrote a memorandum, presented it to Hitler for his approval. Hitler approved it. To begin and I'm I'm paraphrasing as closely as I can to this memo, Al, as I can. Mm-hmm. To begin the unauthorized industrial scale production of English pound sterling notes. <laughs> okay. Mm. Yeah. The, this so the famous, words, mon- yeah, this is the famous operation Bernard, mm. where they're counterfeiting English pound sterling notes. Now yeah you you just cannot imagine you, you know put put german organizational skills in charge of, of a huge international counterfeiting
1: scheme well i I, be, I beg to differ there was jewish skills involved too well yes yeah. there
0: there were jewish counterfeiting i mean they were using jewish counterfeiters yeah. but what i'm talking about is what the germans did was they set up a quality control system yeah That you know they're they're producing literally hundreds of millions of pounds in in counterfeit pound sterling notes, Mm -hmm. but the Germans, being Germans, you know, are going to make sure that the good product is used in in the most clever ways. Mm -hmm. So they had they had a classification system rating the production quality of their pound sterling notes, and some of it was so good that by the end of the war depending on, on which source you read, they had somewhere between 150 million to 300 million pounds sterling <laughs> notes in circulation. In
1: circulation. Wow.
0: Yeah. And, and the notes were so good. This is the part of the story that people have to really understand. The notes were so good. I mean, the Germans tested the quality yeah. by sending a guy to Zurich, Switzerland to, to convert some of these pound sterling notes to other currency just to see if the the notes would pass muster hmm. with the swiss banks that would know how to recognize counterfeit versus authentic notes and they passed the muster they converted the currency so in addition to running all the loot that they're plundering through the bank of Mm. international settlements they're running their own federal reserve uh, yeah they're running their own bank of england you know berlin branch So, at the end of the war the poor british the the bank of england had to recall that entire series of of paper notes and issue new design currency Ah, that's how they sold it Ah, and yeah yeah, and and they had to honor those counterfeit notes that's how good they were You know, they had mathematicians coming up with the scheme of of serial numbers that the Bank of England used to to produce their notes, and then just extrapolated the scheme and came up with legitimate (laughs) serial numbers. So, you know, what they've done is they've created a hidden system of finance here because… Not only are they waging economic war against England, they're taking these counterfeit notes and converting it to hard currency and other currencies and funneling it back into Germany. And on top of this, there is a fellow that's in charge of of the international aspect of of taking all of this counterfeit money and and circulating it in the world by the name of Friedrich von Schwent. And interestingly enough, von Schwent is one of these Nazis that conveniently makes his way to to South America. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah. uh, take that for whatever it's worth, folks. But von Schwent decided, well, you know, this is not only a perfect mechanism for economic warfare against England, but this is this is the perfect mechanism to fund our black projects. Yeah. Because you see, no one can track this stuff. No. <laughs> So we don't even know how big the Nazi black budget was.
1: No, but it's obvious that they had a lot of brain power. They had a lot of manpower and they had unlimited uh,
0: finances. Right, right. As you say, you know, they had all these Jewish counterfeiters in the concentration camps. Mm that they that they coerced into being a part of this program but you know they gave them special privileges yeah. and and you know all of this stuff so it was a huge <laughs> it was just a huge operation
1: mm and uh, with all these resources at disposal uh, i mean I, in a way we should be glad for hitler being in charge because he blew it by yeah. <laughs> having all these wars at the same time in different fronts i mean yeah, they that, had they had the potentiality to to win the whole
0: uh, oh yeah the, you know germany there are studies you know there have been uh, studies of the war over here from the university of oklahoma in fact um of key strategic decisions that, that Hitler took during the war that cost him the war, yeah. you know, the most, the most famous being, um, in August of 1941, after the invasion of, uh, the Soviet Union had begun operation Barbarossa, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by August of, of, 1941, the Wehrmacht was, was literally liquidating the red army. I mean, it was just the, 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 uh, the operational brilliance that, that occurred in, in the first two months of, of that campaign is just stunning. Uh, we in the West and particularly in America really don't understand, mm. uh, what happened in those two months. It was so bad that Stalin actually, uh, contacted Hitler through, through Sweden and said, well, you know, we'll give you everything, you know, from the Baltic States to the Ukraine west of the Dnieper, mm. You know, and at this point, Hitler makes that terrible strategic decision. You know, he's a victim of his own success, for one thing. Uh, he made that terrible strategic decision to turn um, General Heinz Guderian's second panzer army south from Smolensk all the way down to Kiev to, to encircle forces of, of Marshal Budini at, at Kiev. And that's what delayed by two months. The German assault on Moscow. Mm. And of course, you know, Guderian and and Halder and just virtually every German general, Field Marshal von Bock, were just apoplectic. (laughs) Uh, I guess
1: (laughs) if he stuck to the deal he made with Stalin a little longer... Uh, yeah, it would have but uh, he he watched the Finnish uh, fiasco i mean stalin wasn't much better oh yeah uh, the russians didn't manage to take over little finland and that's i think what encouraged it, him yeah.
0: yeah well the fin- russo-finnish war certainly was a huge factor in in uh the okw's calculations for for operation barbarossa mm. but um Many people, and I'm among them, you know, it, to me, it was that decision that cost Hitler the war because uh, had had the Wehrmacht pushed through to Moscow in August rather than October of 1941, mm-hmm. it would have been all over. Right, um, yeah. Uh, It was, it was, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the other, to Stalin's credit, he had at least the intelligence to realize after the the first initial months of his own meddling and interfering with his generals that, you know, I just better leave it to the professionals, (laughs) 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 Mm. which fortunately he did, you know, he didn't micromanage
1: at that particular, you know, Hitler Mm. Hitler was the opposite, Mm. you know, Mm. (laughs) yeah. So, okay, uh, this is interesting because we now see that they have the means uh, to do, you know, what we're getting at. uh, And with that, we will elaborate soon in part two. But the money, the science, the manpower and some uh, obscure philosophy. But we should probably also touch a little upon the facts concerning intelligence, espionage. Right, because the Nazis were well developed there too
0: oh yes absolutely um, we here I don't write much about the intelligence aspects of these things in my books but it's important for people to understand we we in the West particularly in, in Great Britain and the United States hear about the magnificent triumphs of American and British intelligence reading Nazi codes and knowing exactly what they're up to you know but what we never hear <laughs> Is that I think it was in 1941 or 1942 the Obver um, under Admiral Canaris <laughs> had successfully placed a, a, a trap, a bug on the transatlantic cable the phone cable between roosevelt wow. and churchill wow. so so you know hitler is is reading the transcripts of the telephone calls between Churchill and roosevelt yeah, so there were no code so, it was just telephone yeah, okay yeah, so wow. you know um, we never hear about the german intelligence triumphs but that was obviously a huge one uh-huh. um uh-huh. But the other thing that we need to understand, let's go back to the Kamlerstop and, and to this triple ring of security that, that Gestapo Miller, uh, Heinrich Miller, put around the Kammler That security was so extreme and so pervasive that the, the allies, the Western allies and the Soviets were never successful in penetrating that operation. Hmm. There were no moles inside of, of that whole outfit. Mm. Now, they knew that something was going on in Bohemia. They knew that something was going on. So simply, you can't disguise a project that big in, in the in the Skoda Works, in, in Pilsen. And the reason that we know they knew... <laughs> Is because you know i play you know I'll, I'll make a confession here al i play war games all right i play strategy games and and i love to play you mean board games board games mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. uh very kind of general staff style board games these are not the fantasy games you see online these are actual uh military style war games like Axis okay? and allies uh, much more complicated than oh, that okay yeah much much more complicated than that. Mm. These, these are real actual general staff type war games that's what I'm trying to say these are not the, the tailored down popular versions well I play these things and I've played them since I was a kid mm. and it always struck me as extremely odd by any conventional military analysis the way that, that the Germans and the western allies in particular are positioning their troops at the end of the war and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. For example, you have um, the American General Patton and, and the American Third Army driving through sudden, southern Germany. And if you look at the even the official U.S. Army maps of those final campaigns and where the arrows on the maps are headed, <laughs> Patton is making a beeline across Bavaria. For guess what, Pilsen, Czechoslovakia, the southern, uh, the the Hearts Mountains in Thuringia, you know, right around uh, the Joachimstall, the 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 Joachim Valley, mm. with Arnstadt and Ordruf, you know, this little cluster of installations that are not on any maps and no one knows about until Patton's troops find show up there and find all these vast underground installations. Mm. They show up in Pilsen, of course. Beat the Russians to Pilsen. And people have to understand what this really means. It means, number one, there's some intelligence source guiding Patton's movements unerringly to the centers, some of the nerve centers of Kamler's empire. And this could only have come from within the Kamler. Yes, exactly. Mm. And not necessarily molds. We've got to remember the Nazis are deliberately driving where they want certain technology to go at the end of the war. Now, the other thing this means is that General Patton is going to be getting the field intelligence reports of his units as they're going into these places and telling them what they're finding. Mm. So of all the generals in the Allied command staff, you know, Bradley, Montgomery, Eisenhower, and so on, Leclerc, of all of these generals that are getting intelligence reports, the one general who is uniquely in a position to see behind the veil and what some of these secret weapons projects may have been is General Patton. The one that was killed. The one that was killed, yeah, precisely. You, you see, you saw where I was going. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I wanted to ask about the gold, too. Oh, the gold. Yeah. Well, the, the, I this is the other thing. Yeah. This is the other thing. You know, the Nazis stockpiled such immense amounts of gold. Patton's troops also found in a mine, I forget the name of the mine in southern Germany, uh, in one of the shafts, bags and bags and endless, endless bags of coins, gold coins, silver coins gold bars it, the treasure was enormous and this is just one aspect of the treasure mm. Mm. we have to understand that by uh, early 1943 when when the Nazi hierarchy knows that that the war is lost because of the Stalingrad disaster that they begin at that point uh to make strategic evacuation plans to get out of Europe mm. This is so key, folks, I can't emphasize it. Strongly. Uh, and we'll
1: have several shows on that later.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. But they, they begin to make very careful, deliberate plans to get as much of the liquid assets, currency, gold, coins, out of Europe as they can and keep them in Nazi hands. This is crucial. Mm. Uh, because we have to understand that the Nazis did not surrender at World War II's end. Mm. You had you had the Wehrmacht surrendering, but even then you don't even find the signature of of uh, Gross Admiral Dönitz on any of the surrender documents. So no, not as, even as he?
1: did? Uh, not sorry. even known.
0: no. Okay. Dönitz Dönitz is not a signatory to any of those sign- uh, any of those surrender documents. All but he had authority, didn't he? Oh, yeah, mm. absolutely. He had mm. the authority. Absolutely. He was, you know, Hitler named him Staatsoberhaupt, uh, in his will. So, in other words, Dönitz, Dönitz was Reich president and, and, you know, supreme commander of the military as well. So Dönitz had the legal authority to do this, and the Allies, for whatever reason, you know, this to me is still the big mystery, the Allies, for whatever reason, don't have him as a signatory for the surrender of the Reich government. May I suggest
1: uh, maybe a naive uh,
0: hypothesis about
1: this, and and we are, sure. we are uh, going a little too far now, but there is, you know, uh, these uh, new... Uh, signs that hitler may have survived and that the allies knew now if this is real if this is true first of all the admiral whether he knew it or not would not be regarded as the real how should i say authority for
0: signing such a surrender well let me let me address that if Mm. i may. um in, in my book, The Nazi International, I lay out the scenario. I, I, I personally have changed my mind in the last few years. Um, in Reich of the Black Sun, I still was maintaining the idea that Hitler died in the bunker in more or less the way we've been told. Mm. Uh, this is the one thing, the one huge thing that in my research I've changed my mind on. I think he escaped. Uh, I lay out how I think this was done. Uh, hold on. Where do you lay out this? I laid I laid out in in Nazi International Hitler's escape Hitler's escape yes uh, there's a whole chapter uh, in there on the escape of of Martin Bormann and Adolf Hitler and how I think I how I think they did it okay you well it, it involves Nor- it involves Norway so. I know it's a very <laughs> good story <laughs> so um, uh, Christiansand so the the U boat base down there at Christiansand is is involved and then. Um, Oddly enough, the U-boat, I think, that they, they were traveling on actually traveled up then from there up toward Bergen and then back down mm. toward Hamburg. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting story. Mm. And we'll get to that later, the details. Sure, around. but I, yeah, I think Hitler did escape, but the problem, the problem with that scenario is that Hitler did legally, this is the problem, mm-hmm. did legally transfer authority To Admiral Dönitz, so whether he's alive or not, Admiral Dönitz does have the authority. Mm. And this, to my mind, you know, and and I definitely believe that Admiral Dönitz knew all about this plan because I think he was involved with it. He had to have been, you know, if you're going to get people out by submarine, then then you go to the guy that's running the submarines. Mm. Um, So I I do think they they should have done it
1: for propaganda reasons, at least. So that that is strange. And and like you point out in your excellent book, Nazi International,
0: the Japanese did it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, when the Allies Allies had the Japanese surrendering, they made awful sure that the persons signing for the Japanese were representing the Imperial General Staff, the Admiralty, the Imperial Diet, and the Emperor. So, you know, everybody's surrendering that needs to be surrendering here, folks. Everybody and his mother. <laughs> yeah. But when you turn to the German side of the equation, um, the only people surrendering, you know, in Berlin on May 8th are, are uh, uh, General Oberstumpf, uh, Admiral von Friedeburg, and um, Field Marshal Keitel. And <laughs> so. they represent. They represent the three service branches of the Wehrmacht. Mm. But no one is signing on behalf of the Reich government. No one is signing on behalf of the Nazi party. Mm -hmm. So from a legal standpoint, the Allies are really missing the boat here. uh, And this is how you can make a good
1: case for that, even though Germany lost the war the nazi right. the,
0: cult never surrendered the nazi cult no the mm. nazi cult did not surrender it just you know in my view as i as i have made clear on any number of occasions in my view what happened at this point was that the nazi cult went underground and became what i call the nazi international it became a kind of extraterritorial state mm. all right mm. Now it's important to understand why I use those words because when you look at the strategic evacuation plans that begin to be set up after the Stalingrad disaster, what is going on is the Nazi party is creating a direct intense level by level interface Mm. with the large German corporate combines, Tezenkrip, Krupp Stahlwerke, of course, IG Farben. In other words, all and more importantly, the components of IG Farben, Bayerische Anilin und Zotefabrik, Bayer, Höchst You know, all of these, all of these huge German chemical combines were liaised by the Nazi Party at a multitude of levels from the very top to the very bottom. So, in other words, what happens? People have to understand this. People must absolutely understand this. The same power structure that was left in place after World War I and got rid of the Kaiser in order to preserve the power structure, well, that same power structure put Hitler into power, and when Hitler leaves, the same power structure is intact. But now you have the added component that behind this power structure, you've got the Nazi party. Mm. So in other words, when you look at Nazi survival, you have to understand that it's not simply in terms of a few Nazis hiding out in grass huts in, in deep within <laughs> you know, deep with, deep within the Amazon Delta. You know um, you, what you have are colonies well-financed colonies, well-organized colonies with huge amounts of capital at their disposal. They are doing post-war secret research. And in addition to this, you have a huge international intelligence network yeah. you know, that this constitutes, and on top of everything else, <laughs> you know, as if all of this isn't bad enough. This network is deeply plugged into and uh, influencing the rise of radical Islam. It is deeply plugged into the the post-war West German intelligence, which, of course, we know today as the Bundesnachrichtendienst. Well, what's the Bundesnachrichtendienst? It is nothing but the historical successor to German military intelligence on the Eastern Front, an organization called Fremde Herr Ost that was headed by a German major general by the name of, of Reinhard Galen, who becomes the first post-war head of intelligence for West Germany. So in other words, what I'm telling you folks right now, right now at this very moment in Berlin, <laughs> the, the Bundesnachrichtendienst is the direct organizational organism without any discontinuity whatsoever from the Nazi intelligence, military intelligence unit on the Eastern Front. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so, hmm. so, you know, uh, like it or not, this is this <laughs> this is
1: yeah. the fact. Yeah, let me just interject here for people who are not so updated on the Hitler aspect that it's not, there, there's always been rumors about this, and there's been yes. from Nazi circles, neo-Nazi circles, a lot of lunacy, but this is, yeah. this is scientifically based on Hitler's escape, on the Ratlines, right. all this that you are talking sure. about now from Nazi International. And you mentioned that General Kammler, he was running the SS state. I forgot what you called it. What was the name? The Kammlerstadt. Yeah. Could you could you say then that this survival is the survival of the Kammlerstadt?
0: Oh, yes. I definitely think. Oh, boy. That's a, that's another question. I definitely think the Kamler stop survives Mm -hmm. because when we go to Argentina and again, this is all historical record, but you have to peel behind the historical record to look at the connections Mm -hmm. because the connections tell it all Mm -hmm. in 1951. And I, all of this is in the Nazi international in, in much more detail than I can tell it here. And trust me, folks, um, When we're dealing with this story, you cannot be satisfied with what anyone says on a show or in an interview or, you know, as a brief. The devil is in the details. The details are what makes this case plausible.
1: And for those who are concerned with evidence, there's documents, there's footnotes. It's so very well researched that... You know, you have to read a book. I mean, it's it's exciting and it's enlightening and it's a treasure of documentation. So, yeah, continue.
0: Well, let me give the high cliff notes overview of this. In 1951, Juan Perón gave a press conference in Buenos Aires to the Argentine press. Um, Western journalists were not allowed. At this press conference, he introduces a, a German scientist by the name of Dr. Ronald Richter and makes the grand announcement that due to the research efforts of Dr. Richter, Argentina has solved the problem of the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> now, you, you have to understand here, what's going on at this time is America is hosting and the Organization of American States. So in other words, he's got all the Americas playing host to all these Latin American countries. And here's Juan Perón making this announcement while this conference is going on, that Argentina knows the secret of the hydrogen bomb. Mm. And this is fully eight to nine months before the united states has exploded its first hydrogen bomb so, <laughs> so you know the reaction of the world press is what might have been expected the, you know dr richter was a fraud he's a mountebank. he's a swindler none of this is true blah 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 mm. and the reaction of the press when richter kind of outlines his theory the reaction of the world scientific press is just overwhelmingly negative so this makes Juan Perón suspicious, and he appoints a commission directly under his presidential authority to report to him only, headed by a Dutch physicist, Jan Bakker, and then a, an Argentine nuclear physicist by the name of Dr. José Balsero. And doc, I reproduced Dr. Bacero's report in the Nazi International rather extensively because you've got to read the details. What Balsero says is that Dr. Richter is claiming to get fusion reactions at temperature gradients far below, far below what standard thermonuclear chemistry said was possible. In other words, Richter's talking about cold, cold fusion. fusion. Yeah. <laughs> so, at that point... That's not all he's talking about. But, no. But um, <laughs> but Richter was he connected to Egelo? Well, hang on, hang on, yep. hang on. Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting okay. So when you when you look at Richter's project, he was doing this project on Huemol Island, close to San Carlos de Bariloche in, in southern Argentina, mm-hmm. in close to a Nazi preserve, which I also document in the book. So in other words, what you've got here is a something is going on here that the Nazis are running inside of Argentina. And Juan Perón is not being told the truth because he's appointed this commission to find out exactly what is going on there. So in other words, this is a clue, folks, that there's some huge project going on in Argentina under the auspices of, of Perón's government. But Perón himself is kind of out of the loop. Yeah. So when you investigate Richter's project, all of a sudden you discover that he's getting some of his equipment from guess who? The Allgemeine Electricitätsgesellschaft. Okay. So if you go back to what I said a few minutes ago about this document concerning the Bell project that's signed by Abraham Izau under the letterhead of Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering, <laughs> uh, talking about a particular uh, doctor, uh, scientist that had been imprisoned by the Gestapo had to be released immediately mm-hmm. because his work was important for this war decisive research project. Well, in other words, what I'm telling you, the same company that was involved with the Bell is involved with Dr. Richter's project. Mm-hmm. And so, what is Richter saying he's doing? Well, <laughs> He says, what I'm doing here, folks, is – I and this is him explaining to the U.S. Air Force. We'll get to this in a moment. Mm. Uh, He's explaining to the U.S. Air Force that, well, what I was doing is I was speeding up lithium-7 deuteride plasma. I was putting it into rotation – Using Larmor radio precession frequencies and so on. So, in other words, he's talking about rotating a plasma. What does this sound like? Does this ring a bell? <laughs> <laughs> it rings a bell, yeah. <laughs> and then he's then he's pulsing it with gobs of, of uh, high voltage electricity, mm. and then he comes out and tells the U.S. Air Force, "Well, the reason I'm doing all this." <laughs> is because and by the way i i noticed the this phenomenon in experiments i was doing in germany in 1936 <laughs> oh he he says that <laughs> yeah he says that mm. to the us air force mm. so it's it's in the documents in the book and uh, by the way when we do this you see what i think is going on is there's there's a sort of cellular structure inside a plasma that establishes a mechanism a, a, a coupling mechanism with a sort of cell structure in space-time, that we call the zero-point energy. And this these are Richter's exact words. Hmm. Okay? <laughs> this is not me paraphrasing. This is Richter. Hmm. So, in other words, Richter's telling you, yeah, I'm not only doing cold fusion, but for me, the real interest here isn't even the fusion itself. It's, we're getting energy Free from this that's energy. gating into the reaction.
1: Which also means that's, anti-gravity.
0: Yeah, bingo. Ding, ding, ding. Hmm. <laughs> so, so why is the U.S. Air Force doing this? Well, interestingly enough, after Richter was denounced as a fraud in a mountebank by the world scientific press, the U.S., of course, is lighting off all these hydrogen bombs in the South Pacific. And the, and the funny thing is, it's not so funny when you stop and think about it, but every, every single early test pre-test yield calculation please understand what i'm saying every single one of these pre-test yield calculations is wrong (laughs) okay so when they fire the mike hydrogen bomb off the very first hydrogen bomb Mm -hmm. when they fire that thing off they calculated a yield i think of between five and seven megatons something like that and the bomb ran away to about eight or nine megatons Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you've got the famous Castle series of tests. Hang on, Where, what, when when is all this? Uh, the Mike test is 1952. Oh, this late, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then the the Castle series of tests, I believe, were 53 or 54. And then, of course, we have within that series of tests, we have two real whoppers. <laughs> okay. Whopper number one was the Castle Bravo test. This is probably the most infamous bit of thermonuclear dice throwing that, that there ever was, mm-hmm. because the scientists had calculated a pre-test yield of between 5 and, and 7 megatons. Okay, When they fired the bomb off, it ran away to 15 megatons. Oh. <laughs> which, you know, yeah. Whoops. Ouch, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> whoops. Mm-hmm. And obviously they had to come up with an excuse for this mm-hmm. so the excuse believe it or not is that okay in the lithium deuteride fuel that we, <laughs> we were using for this bob we had uh not taken into account that the lithium seven in the mixture would fuse we were only calculating the lithium six reactions okay so in other words American thermonuclear engineers are telling us that they didn't know enough about standard thermonuclear chemistry to know that lithium deuteride the lithium 7 in it would enter the fusion reaction. Hmm. That's the story. <laughs> okay, now yeah. why is that why is Richter so significant because if you go back and read what he was telling Dr. Jose Balsero in 1951, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. a couple of years ahead of these tests, he was saying I'm doing this with lithium 7. Hmm. So in other words, if it's standard thermonuclear chemistry and Dr. Richter knows it and Dr. Balsero knows it, chances are Dr. Teller knows it, okay? <laughs> so This public explanation is nonsense. Mm. So the U.S. Air Force sends, after these tests, Peron has put Richter under house arrest in Buenos Aires. He can't leave the city. So the U.S. Air Force secretly sends people down in 1954, down to Buenos Aires, to interview Dr. Richter. And this is Why? to get the information, because, because what he's doing is he's telling them what the real mechanism of all of this extra energy is and where it's coming from. That's why. Mm. So he's only a fool in the papers, not in. He's the, only uh, a fool in the papers. Yeah, right. That's right. Mm. And when you read the real kicker here, Al, is when you read the U.S. Air Force and the scientific uh, evaluations of what they're reporting back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a real trip, and I even talk about this in the. Uh, secret space program conference last year that i i did um when the american scientists are reviewing richter and you read this summary in the u.s air force's own official statements well the first thing you read is well what he's talking about is theoretically possible but it's so far beyond the technology that we have available it's simply infeasible then in the same paragraph it goes on to say, "Well, he was a competent scientist in Europe, but lately he's more like a, a fraud and a swindler in a monobank and then <laughs> yet later in the same paragraph, you read that one American scientist says, "Well, this guy, yeah, he's some sort of mad genius, he's just working so <laughs> he's just working so far ahead of the game that you know he appears to be kind of nuts, and then at the final part of the paragraph, well, you know. Fraud or mountebank or not, we better keep, better keep a pretty close eye on this guy, and gather every scrap of intelligence about him and what he's up to that we can. So, in other words, you have right there, folks, an admission from the Air Force that the public story is possibly wrong, mm-hmm. that there's more going on down there in Argentina with this Richter character, and when Peron shuts his project down. And the other interesting thing that that I have to mention is when when Richter is performing his experiments for the Argentine Commission, he makes egregiously simple, utterly confounding, stupid errors. Hmm. So in other words, it appears to me like Richter was ordered Mm. to play the fool and discredit his own project so that it would get shut down and they could move it elsewhere. Mm.
1: Yeah, because uh, the, the very fact that he's talking is, is uh, strange yeah. in itself. Yes, exactly. exactly. But I was wondering, Rich's background, because we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. I was thinking right. uh, in Germany, was he working, cooperating
0: with Gerlach? Ah, well, interestingly enough, guess where he was working in Germany? He was working at the Allgemeine Shop. Mm. Guess what he was working on? He was working on plasmas. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Now, you know, the connections here, folks, are just so bizarre because there's a fellow we haven't even talked about in this connection oh, yeah. yet. Yeah, the guy who went to America? Yeah, yeah. Kurt Davis, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Davis. Um, he, Richter is at the Allgemeine shaft working on high-voltage plasma experiments at the same time that Dr. Davis is working at the same company on the the same types of experiments, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, And incidentally, it's Davis who denounced the other scientist, (coughs) pardon me, to the Gestapo, (coughs) that created that document from Abraham Azau under the letterhead of Reichs-Marshal Goering to get the Gestapo to release the scientist. That was Davis, that first announced him to the Gestapo. Mm. So in other words, you know, there are connections here that people really have to understand are are deep, they're detailed. And in Davis's case, where does he end up? Well, as you said, he ends up in the United States. Mm. He ends up, incidentally, as the flight administrator at Cape Canaveral during the Apollo missions. So he's working with von Braun. He's working, there are numerous pictures of, of Davis and Von Braun together, numerous. Mm. He's working directly with Von Braun, but here's the problem. As I indicated, Davis is working on high-voltage plasma experiments inside the third ray. Mm. In other words, he's not a rocket scientist at all. No, he's working with uh, nuclear yeah, he's working he's working with the nuclear stuff. He's yeah. working on aspects of the Bell project. Right. So why does he end up as head the senior f- Flight administrator. (laughs) (laughs) There's
1: only one answer to that.
0: (laughs) There's only one answer. There's only one answer.
1: So I guess guess there is a secret space program. But uh, do you think that these top German scientists, even if not everyone was working with the Bell project, do you think they were back at the day when they were in in Germany, wouldn't they be exchanging, uh, they would have to exchange knowledge, ideas, and stuff?
0: Sure yeah uh, as i as i said Kamler when he set up this this secret research think tank, he created a a top secret journal you know um think of it as as wissenschaft heute you know science today or something <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know and and classify the whole journal you know top secret Geheimer yeah. geheimreichsacket and then uh the, the scientists are publishing their papers in this journal, so in other words Kamler because of the intense security around his, his staff, is able to avoid compartmentalization and let the scientists see what each other is doing. That is huge yeah. because he's, you see what he's doing is he's creating a culture where they can think out of the box, exchange ideas with each other, and just lay it all out there, mm. and this would accelerate all kinds of uh, progress. Oh yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. If you look at, if you look at the secret weapons that that the Nazis are producing at the end of the war, they're these very exotic combinations of technologies in in very creative ways, mm. and you know this this to me is coming out of this kind of DARPA like atmosphere that, that General Kamler has created inside of this institution mm. um, so do they know to some degree what each other's up to all the indications are yes but this doesn't mean that they know the details you know no. it would be like people in America you know hearing about the Manhattan Project well it's, the, it's this really big top secret project they're up to something but we really don't know what mm. uh, it would be kind of along those lines I certainly don't think, for example, that Dr. von Braun would have known about the Bell Project. But I do think that people like Dr. Davis, since he's so clearly connected with it, did. I do think that people like uh, Hermann Obert did, because he's connected, clearly connected in, in the Bell Project. Uh, hang on.
1: Uh, have you mentioned him, Obert, in this? Uh, no, I, we
0: have not mentioned okay. Obert yet. In, okay. Okay. In okay. This, but but uh, continue. <laughs> but, but uh, Obert, um, Obert and um, uh, Richter, Gerlach, Davis yeah all these people after the war I think would have known more about these projects than before in other words I think after the war it's likely that given the fact that von Braun and Davis in particular are working so closely together yeah, that that von Braun would have heard something by that point uh, about the project. Because, you know, you find von Braun popping up in all the yeah. weird, weirdest places. Hoagland have argued for so long that von
1: Braun uh, was with the other Nazi scientists, obviously doing the real science, the Bell, the anti gravity science. Right. Yeah. But let's recap and take a little break here. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, just one quick question. Yeah. As for the espionage uh, intelligence network, yeah. you were saying Kamla was running the the big uh, organizational stuff. Right. We had Borman, who was the financial genius.
0: Right.
1: We have uh, uh, the Gerlock as the top scientist. What, right. Was it Miller or Galen who was running
0: the well espionage? Ga- both both of these men in my opinion survived the war galen clearly did no one disputes this uh galen is running the the standard military espionage type stuff Mm. but i think gestapo miller definitely survived the war Uh, oddly enough at his supposed grave in berlin there are three different people's bones in his grave none of them with the dna of the miller family (laughs) so (laughs) gee go figure um, but Miller, I think, survived the war and probably became uh, kind of the post-war counterintelligence head. But, but, but know, what about
1: the pre-war or or the during the the Reich? Was it Galen or Miller who was the top dog as?
0: Well, in in again, Galen represented military intelligence on the Eastern Front. The top dog in in internal. Intelligence within the Third Reich would have been Heydrich up until ah. his assassination. Okay. After after the assassination of Heydrich, you have Gestapo Miller taking over as counterintelligence in Bohemia and Moravia. So you know, but again, you, you have to understand the Nazi intelligence hierarchy is a cluster of agencies. You you had Ad, Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, uh, head of the Abwehr which is Germany's military counterintelligence. So you've got numerous intelligence agencies. None of them are really uh, top dog, other than the fact that that you have this cluster organization, uh, the Reichsziekerheit Hauptamt, which runs all you know it, that literally means National Security Agency. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so
1: in contents
0: you know, and in name, <laughs> in right. yeah. contents and in name, that's <laughs> that's right. So uh, you have you have uh, a variety of people, but certainly Miller would have had an enormous amount of information available to him in his in his capacity as as just the, the personal head of counterintelligence for, for the stuff. Yeah, some, so, some say he even blackmailed Hitler. And yeah, Well, this is the other thing. We have to understand that Miller's nexus with Bormann is direct mm. and personal. Because Miller was the Munich detective that Bormann asked to cover up the, the uh, details of the suicide of Gailey Raubel, Hitler's first mistress, and his niece. So it was Miller that did that favor to Bormann. And, of course, that means, you know, Bormann promoted him once the Nazis got into power. And that relationship between Miller and Bormann continued throughout the war because Bormann had Miller at numerous points during the war, six different times, investigate any Jewish family influences in Hitler's family. Not to defend
1: Hitler, maybe to find something on
0: him. Well, maybe defines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Define something out. You know, you're dealing with a you're dealing with a, a, a snake pit of vipers. <laughs> you know? so. Yeah, with all sorts of connections back and forth. Right. Right. Okay.
1: Let's take a break, uh, and when we come back in part two, which is a separate file, we'll switch gears. We'll uh, be going deeper, further. With a license to speculate, we'll <laughs> yeah. do some scenario thinking, which is always very fun. And I know Joseph has some very interesting perspectives on, on these things. Uh, it's more or less a necessity based upon upon the facts that of which some have been outlined here in this first part. Of course, it's impossible to cover everything in, in a mere interview. And... Uh, That's one of the reasons you should really get the books, to see, you know, the details, the pictures, the reality of the stuff, the the footnotes, the documentations. And and Joseph also writes very captivating, so you'll have a good time with these books. The, The first of the three books that we have touched upon today is Reich of the Black Sun. Nazi Secret Weapons and the Cold War Allied Legion. The second one is the SS Brotherhood of the Bell. The subtitle there is The Nazis' Incredible Secret Technology. And the third one uh, is Nazi International, subtitled The Nazis' Post-War Plan to control finance, conflict, physics, and space. Now, we'll go deeper into the post-war part of the Nazis in the next program we have Joseph. So, in part two, okay, we'll touch upon some of it, but this book, Nazi International, will also be dealt with, together with a few other Nazi books of his, in a separate program. But in part two, today, we'll uh, go further into the topics we've uh, already touched upon, and we'll try to gather everything together, so it will make more sense, and maybe we can get a more realistic, more authentic version, disclosure of the history.
0: All of our files are free, and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.